Father in heaven, as we bow before you this morning and seek your face, we ask that you would speak your words through me and that truth would be heard. And we thank you for those gathered here and we ask you to be with those that are sick and somewhat ill, that you would refresh them and heal them and may they be whole very soon, Father. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were hoping for a lesson of deep spiritual impact or great uh, theological import, I'm sorry, that's just not going to be the lesson we're going to have this morning. We're mostly just going to have a history lesson. So, but hey, the Bible's mostly history, and so I hope that you can glean something from that. Um, This is really part three of a series of lessons I've given um, called Even the Self-Same Day. So uh, since we're going to have a history lesson, I thought that I might start us off with kind of a a pop quiz, if you will, all right? So we'll start off with the uh, Sons of Joseph. uh, You know, we're into history here, so what year did, uh, did America become a country? 1776, right. Sorry, I don't have any Jolly Ranchers for y'all. <laughs> um, so that would be the great nation of Ephraim, right? Now, when was the, the Commonwealth of Manasseh established? What year was the British Commonwealth established? Be about 1800, okay? So that would be, you know, the great nation of Ephraim and the company of nations of Manasseh as prophesied in Genesis 49. Um, I, I'm pretty Irish myself, so uh, are there any Irishmen out there? Come on. All right, a few of you. Pretty important event in Irish history would be the Irish potato famine. I know that my family's here because of that. So uh, what year did that happen? 1840s. 1840s, yeah, 1846 to 47 was the first year of the Irish potato famine. That event would mark the migration of about a million Irishmen to America, North America, and about the death by starvation and disease about a million others. It's a pretty sad event in history. Um, for some, is there any Scotsmen in the crowd today? Any Scotsmen? All right. What year did Scotland become a country in medieval history? Come on, guys. Where's our piper? Where's our piper? Does he know? Uh, yeah, the Scottish Declaration of Independence. Oh, 1320 would be the signing of the Declaration of Aberroth. The Glorious Revolution would be 1688, but that was more English. Yeah. So, you know, you guys might remember that. There's a movie, you know, in the year of our Lord, 1314, Scottish patriots, starving and outnumbered, charged the fields of Bannockbourne. They fought like warrior poets. They fought like Scotsmen and won their freedom. Right? Right? All right, let's switch gears. Let's try one of the other tribes. I think Joseph did pretty good. Let's try these guys over here. So are there some South Africans in the crowd today? Huh? There's some South Africans? Yeah. All right. What year did the Battle of Blood River take place? 1838. <laughs> Say again? 1838. All right. Martin knows his history. <laughs> Very well. 
And that was the day of the oath, right? Yeah. What year did Germany become a country? Say again? 1870. Very good. I'm impressed. <laughs> All right. I didn't know if you guys would get that one. All right, let's get a little broader here. So how many Israelites do we have in the crowd today? Yeah. Amen? We've got a whole bunch of you guys. Everybody here is an Israelite as far as I can see. Amen. So what year did Israel become a country? <laughs> Wrong one. <laughs> That's the fake. 1446, the year of the Exodus. Now, I figured you did. <laughs> I saw that. All right. Um, so our history lesson today, I hope that by the end of this lesson today, that the events of the Exodus will be as real to you as the American Revolution. You'll be able to put names and faces to those who were parts in it. You'll understand the geopolitical area of Egypt and what's going on. You'll understand the, the pharaoh who knew not Joseph. You'll know who, who he is and why he came to power and did what he did to the Israelites. And that it'll just be a very real event in history in your minds. Just, just as real as any other historical event that you study. So... We'll begin with kind of a little bit of, let's actually go to the back of your sheet and start at the bottom. We're going to kind of go through this backwards and upside down, so to speak. So on the left-hand side are events that are known in history, and then on the right-hand side are what we might call biblical events. Um, so starting at the bottom there, with the first year of King Solomon's reign, and I have that written under um, world events, because that's a from history, that's actually a fairly well-established date, 970 B.C. And that's kind of got from taking like the chronology of the kings in the book of Kings and Chronicles and starting with like the reign of Nebuchadnezzar and adding those up. Um, and that's witnessed too by several other historical artifacts. There's a thing called the Jehu Steel that's a Assyrian artifact that records when King Jehu, a biblical king, paid homage to, I think, uh, Sennacherib, an Assyrian king. And so that's testified to in Assyrian records. And so, and it gives the date for that king, and you, know, you can cross-reference that to when Jehu was king, and you just kind of keep adding back from there. And so that brings you to the year 970, as the first year of the reign of King Solomon. And that's important to our chronology here. Let's look at uh, 1 Kings 6, verse Kings 6, 1. It says, uh, And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign, over Israel in the month Ziph, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. That's a really important verse because it tells us, it gives us a tangible number that we can start at with the reign of Solomon and go back in history and it tells us exactly 480 years from that date is the Exodus. And that's the year that essentially Israel came out of Egypt and became a nation. The year that the uh, 
know, the covenant at Mount Sinai was formed between Israel and God. So we add 480 years to 966, and that'll give us the 1446 B.C. date of the Exodus. Now, as I said, this is part three of some previous lessons in which we explored the, the timeline of how long the Israelites were in Egypt. Now, most of you, if I asked you how long the Israelites were in Egypt, would probably tell me they were there for, in Egypt for about 430 years. That's probably the general understanding that most people would have. But, and that's taken if you look at uh, Exodus chapter 12, verse 41. So then it came to pass at the end of 430 years, even the selfsame day, it came to pass that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Now, I agree with that verse completely, 100%, but there's a little bit of detail that can be washed over in that. And that's that uh, the, the term the children of Israel encompasses a, a national term and that it speaks really of even the forefathers of that race. So it's that 430 years will encompass the lifespan of some of Abraham's life, Isaac's life, and Jacob's life as well. And we see that Paul really clears that up for us in Galatians. Galatians chapter uh, 3 and verse 17. I'll read that for you. Says, uh, and this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. So Paul really clears up that 430 years for us and says that the beginning point of that covenant was not when, or the 430 years, was not when the Israelites first came into Egypt, not when Jacob and his 70 descendants came into Egypt, but it was in fact when the covenant was formed with Abraham. So from the Abrahamic covenant unto the Exodus is 430 years. There's some uh, interesting like, side notes is that if you look at uh, Moses' genealogy, he is a grandson to Levi on his mother's side. His mother is a daughter of Levi, whom Levi's mother bore to Levi in Egypt. That's Jochebed. And then on his father's side, he's a great-grandson of Levi. So if they're in Egypt for 430 years, there's no way that that could work. There's actually about, if you look through just all the names that we see around the time of the Exodus, there's about 20 names that you'll find if you look at their genealogies that are people that are like grandsons and great-grandsons of the patriarchs. And so, you know, the timing just it doesn't work at all. Um, so kind of in this lesson, what I really wanted to do is, you know, because I've really juxtaposed that whole timeline, you might say. So I wanted to, you know, just basically overlay that biblical history with world history and see, do we find a, a parallel? Can we look at the events in Egypt of what's going on, and we overlay it with that biblical history of understanding where that timeline is and how things are playing out, and see if we see corollaries? 
you know, with, with firm dates now of an Exodus in 1446, we should be able to look in Egyptian history and see, well, who was Pharaoh right then? What was going on? What's, you know, how long before that did, do we see a change in who is Pharaoh? Kind of a drastic change. Is there a famous daughter of a Pharaoh that might, we might be able to say, hey, is she connected to Moses? So that's, that's my hope with the lesson today. Um, so if we move kind of on the first page there, when we take the 430 years and we add that to the 1446 date of the Exodus, that will bring us to 1876. And that would be then the event that Paul is speaking of, the covenant, the day that the covenant was made that began that 430-year timeline to bring us to the Exodus. And in the first lessons we covered this, but uh, I think it's important to note in Exodus 12:41, he says, 430 years, even the self-same day they came out. Why is that important? Because the Exodus happened on Passover, and that means that the covenant that God made with Abraham was also formed on Passover day, to the exact day, 430 years. So we can note that. I think that's something that you should really reflect on because it shows that even before the Exodus, God had a plan for Passover to be part of our people's history and the covenants that he would play out for us. So we know the age of Abraham at the time of the covenant. that He was 99 years old. So we can go back almost 100 years from that point and that will tell us the the year of Abraham's birth. So now that we've kind of gone through this whole thing backwards, let's, in a general sense, we're going to come through it forward and look, overlap the events of world history and biblical history. So, 1975, the birth of Abraham. We know that he was born in a city called Ur of the Chaldees. Um, and God speaks to him and to his father and tells them that they need to get out of there, that they need to leave the land of their nativity and come into the promised land. Now, as I kind of looked through events that are happening around that time, especially in Ur, I come across something that seems like a very firm date in history, and that is in the year 1940 B.C., the city of Ur was sacked by a group of people called the Elamites. That story is told in a, we actually have an ancient document, of that called the, the Lament of Ur. And they tore down the walls, they pretty much destroyed everything. There's, the only thing that remains of the city of Ur is a thing called the Ziggurat, and it's this place where likely human sacrifice took place. It's this kind of pyramid thing with steps, you know, almost like an Aztec kind of pyramid. So that's the only thing left of the city of Ur. Um, I'm sure if CNN was there, they probably would have reported it as a mostly peaceful sacking, but... Um, <laughs> That doesn't appear to be what we learn. It appears it was wholesale slaughter in the city of Ur when they sacked it. Um, so my question to you, and you know, this lesson is highly theoretical, I'll give you that. But, you know, so we're looking at things, that e events that happen in history, and how they might parallel the events in biblical history. Um, but, you know, I think it's a tangible question. Do you think that Abraham, God would have had Abraham and his family leave Ur before or after 
this destruction took place? Probably before. So that would mean that Abraham would be about 75 years old, or not 75, 35 years old when he leaves Ur. You know, I, you know, I think we could tangibly kind of hypothesize a little bit about that. That, um, well, let's read, let's read a quick account of that. Let's look at Acts chapter 7 real quick. This is Stephen speaking, and he's kind of giving a summary of the events in biblical history. It says, look at Acts 7, verses 2 to 4. And he said, Men and brethren and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Quran, and said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, and come into the land which I will show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Quran. From thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein ye now dwell. So God literally comes to Abraham and says, get out. Quote. So I think that, you know, to kind of hypothesize about that, that uh, God comes to Abraham and says, hey, you need to get out of here. And Abraham maybe, like, ow, you know, what's his voice? coming to me. I don't know about this. Maybe I should listen to this or not. I don't know. And you know, he talks to his father and tries, you know, he's, all right, we, we, maybe we should move, you know, and they decide, all right, we're going to listen to this and we're going to go ahead and get out of here. And I think that shortly after they left, the destruction of Ur happened. You know, that's kind of a, a pattern when God tells people to leave a large metropolitan area that's full of sin and wickedness like human sacrifice that it gets destroyed once he gets his people out. So that's, that's kind of my theory. I can't, you know, prove that that's the timeline that happened, but I think it's pretty tangible. So then we learned that uh, Abraham and his father, Terah, go to Haran. And uh, we know from the Bible that Abraham is 75 years old when he leaves Haran. And that is, you know, essentially ends up being 40 years that God would have dwelt in Quran with his father Abraham. Essentially, according to Stephen, he lived there until his somewhat unbelieving father possibly dies. And, you know, that's kind of an interesting number and situation because it's somewhat of a poetic bookends to the story of coming into Palestine, right? Because we also have on the other side of that some other people who dwelt just outside of the land for 40 years while they waited for an unbelieving generation to die. So, I mean, that's just the way the math worked out. I think it's interesting. Maybe it adds a little bit of credence to the story. Um, so Terah dies in about 1900, and that's when Abraham comes into the land of promise. And we would, our next event would be the Genesis 15 land-grant covenant. And I have question marks that I've put there because a lot of chronologists will say that that happened when Abraham was 75. Um, from the time that Abraham came into the land of promise, he pitches his tent, then a famine arises, he goes down into Egypt, um, has a, you know, there's a story about his unbelief and an event that happened with Sarah. Um, the king, or the pharaoh of Egypt at that time would have been Sennacherib the second or Sennacherib the third. Um, that would be the events of Genesis 12, verses 10 to 20, right there. 
Um, so that happens. Abraham comes up out of Egypt. Uh, his herds increase. The, uh, there's kind of a, a rift then that happens between him and Lot. Lot and him separate ways. Um, you know, Lot goes down moves into Sodom. Some other kings come and take Sodom. Uh, Abraham goes and rescues Lot. Anyway, that to me is a lot of events. And I, I think that to say that all that happened in one year is, is stretching it. I don't think that that is tangible for that, all those events to happen. And then Genesis 15 happens and God makes a covenant and Abraham is still 75 years old. And I, I want to put that out there because the, what I've suggested that we see the, the covenant at the 430-year mark being Genesis 17 covenant is somewhat contradictory to a more popular opinion that happens in uh, the, Genesis, that it's the Genesis 15 covenant and Abraham's 75 years old. Um, and I want to say that because I don't think we're told how old Abraham is in Genesis 15. And so we don't really have a tangible number to work with. Um, so I think that based on those two things that it is more proper to see the covenant that Paul is speaking of in Galatians as the Genesis 17 covenant of circumcision with Abraham. Okay, so moving forward, um, we're in, you know, we see that the events of Genesis 17 and 18 take place at the appointed time. Um, talked about that, that the word appointed time that's used basically three times to tell the story of Genesis 17 and 18 and the prophecy that Isaac would be born one year later, God uses the word appointed time, and it's the word moed in Hebrew, which is constantly used and translated as feast days, feast time. So that's kind of a witness to us that it was indeed the feast time of Passover that God came to Abraham and made this covenant. So then Abraham, or Isaac would have been born one year later, also at the time of Passover, as it says in Genesis 21 and 22. The next event that we would have in kind of biblical history would be the sacrifice of Isaac, which we talked about earlier this week. Um, and the point of that lesson that I gave was that Isaac was very much a young man when that happened. That no lad or no young boy, which we often see pictured in the story of Abraham and Isaac, would be able to, as the story says, carry the wood of the burnt offering up the mountain. Um, in the text there, Abraham says to his and it says, young men, stay here and I and the lad will go up and worship. But in the actual Hebrew text there, the, it's the same Hebrew word, nahar, that is given for both. It's the Hebrew underlying word for young men that Abraham speaks to, essentially his bodyguards and porters that came with him, and nahar, young man, that Isaac is. It's the same word, they're just translated into two different English words. So I think it could probably be said, Abraham says to the young men, I and the young man will go further and worship. Understanding the that Isaac is then about 30 years old gives us a more exacting parallel of the story of the sacrifice of Isaac and how it is a true parallel of the sacrifice of Christ. That 
Abraham gave his only begotten beloved son in the prime of his life as a sacrifice to God, and so God did the same for him. Um, it's important to note that in uh, verse 19 of Exodus tw- or Genesis 22, that Abraham, essentially, from the text we learn, returns without Isaac. Um, the next time that we run into Isaac, he is living on his own in the south part of uh, Palestine. And so we can understand a chronology and a and somewhat of a difference that we have in some of the timelines that there's in Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, your seed will wander 400 years. So with understanding that the sacrifice of Isaac takes place 30 years after the 430 years, we then have a parallel and an explanation of why there's a difference in some chronologies between the 430 years and the 400 years. So the the point of the 400 years begins when Isaac essentially leaves home shortly after the story of the sacrifice of Isaac. So Isaac doesn't return. All right, moving forward, 1815 would be the birth of Jacob and Esau, and then uh, 1735 would be the birth of Joseph. And it is about this time, as we turn over to events that are happening in Egypt, that there's a kind of a new group of people that are moving and migrating into Egypt, and they're called the Hyksos. Okay? You guys have probably heard that, that phrase. They are a Semitic people, so that would mean they're descended from Shem. They're a little bit different from the Hamites of Egypt, you know, still obviously Adamic, but uh, slightly different. You know, they have got a little, little bit different names, uh, speak a little bit different language. So they're migrating and coming into Egypt. Uh, Egypt's kind of in what they would call an intermediate period where there's no central single pharaoh. It's a little broken up. They're not at the height of a power. It's not very unified. And these Hyksos begin to uh, rule and set up them set themselves up as pharaohs, and they're ruling over the eastern delta of Egypt. And of course, you think about a little bit of geography. That's where um, the Israelites, under you know, when Joseph comes in, you know, they're going to come into that eastern delta first. So, and I w- want to talk about these Hyksos because there's, I think, there's a lot of disinformation out there about them. There's some really false assumptions. Um, two of which we actually owe all the way back to the historian Josephus. Josephus um, was reading through the Egyptian history written by a guy named Manetho. Some of you may have heard that name. He's the person we know the most Egyptian history from. And he read about these people that Manetho called the Hyksos and said that they came into Egypt, they were a Semitic people, and they became the rulers for a little while, and then there was a war, and they, about 250,000 of these Hyksos were expelled out of Egypt. And Josephus was reading this, and he's like, wow, that's talking about the Israelites. That's a pretty fair, you know, kind of assumption, but the timing just doesn't quite work, because, you know, they're, a, they're actually a powerful, already reigning people in the year 1720, and you know, Joseph gets sold into slavery there, you know, shortly after, about, you know, right around that same era. So, the timing just doesn't work. And plus, from the biblical account, 
you know, the Israelites never became pharaohs themselves. You know, Joseph may have been a vizier, but he was not the pharaoh himself. And no, there's no record or anything that would purport that he himself later, you know, or any of his descendants became more than that. Okay, so it was a good try, but you know, the Hyksos were not the Israelites. It just doesn't doesn't play out. Okay. The other problem that we have from Josephus is that through kind of a linguistic connection, he thought that the word Hyksos meant shepherd kings. Okay. And that's now pretty much universally understood as being a, a false assumption on his part. But we're, we've been kind of plagued with that assumption. So e Egyptologists today, looking at that word, say that it means foreign kings. Foreign kings, that's what they're called in Egyptian. So they're, you know, a set of rulers that came from somewhere else other than Egypt, set themselves up as rulers over Egypt, and they are the foreign kings, is how the Egyptians called them. So that's kind of important because we have a story in the life of Joseph where his brothers come to him. He says, well, don't tell these guys that you're shepherds because they look down on shepherds. And so because of that and the assumption that the Hyksos were shepherd kings, that, oh, well, this event couldn't have happened during their reign. So that kind of clears, clears up the, the muddy water, as you will, with that um, story. So Joseph comes in. We see that you know, he would have come into the area where the Hyksos are beginning to rule. They're beginning to set up their kind of reign over Egypt. There are Semitic people, somewhat akin, who seem to speak the same, some of the same language or close to that of what the Israelites would be familiar with. And so it's really, you know, that seems to fit well that this pharaoh would meet this young man, Joseph, and would have no problem with setting him up as the vizier of Egypt. And that the, the Hyksos are, are not really at their height of power yet. It's not until 1650 that they will take the city of Memphis, and then from there they subjugate what they call Upper Egypt. So they allow a native Egyptian to maintain rule in Upper Egypt, but he's subjugated. He you know, answers to them, and he pays taxes to the Hyksos. Okay? So you know, I think that you can kind of see, you know, post-Joseph, the events that happened as a result of the famine, actually would have contributed greatly to the power and prestige of the Hyksos dynasty. That, you know, that really would have set them up as having more control over Egypt, and you know, the Egyptians would feel like, hey, we have some debt to these people, because they really did literally save the whole rest of the nation by you know, God's providence and what he did through Joseph. Okay? Well, so things continue for a while. You know, it's, things are going great in, in Egypt. Um, the Israelites are brought into the land of Goshen. They're multiplying. Things are going well. But those, that subjugated king up in upper Egypt, he decides that he doesn't like this arrangement and that he thinks that Egypt should be ruled by Egyptians. So he begins a revolt against the Hyksos. The first king, or uh, pharaoh, you might say, that begins this is a guy named Sequinary the Tau, and he's called the Brave is his epitaph. Um, so he begins a revolt against the Hyksos 
coming down from Upper Egypt into Lower Egypt with his forces, and he wants to try to unite Egypt under Egyptian rule. He dies in battle. So there's actually, we have his mummy. He's got actually a big hole inside of his head where he got hit by something. He got several other broken bones. So he dies in battle. That the war that he started is continued by his son, Kamos. Kamos also likely dies in battle. Um, at his death, that would be what they call the end of the 17th dynasty. His brother, Amos I, who's the bro brother to Kamos, continues the war against the Hyksos. And he becomes the first pharaoh of what they call the 18th dynasty. His son, Amenhotep, is the one who finishes the expulsion of the Hyksos. So he would have been the guy that Josephus read about that expelled about 250,000 of the Hyksos out of Egypt. Okay? He is the first king to maintain a standing army in Egypt um, for the stated purpose that he was afraid that these, these Hyksos would come back and they'd try to take over Egypt again. So he wanted to have a standing army ready at all times to fight them off. Now, with that understood, that little bit of history, how does that fit into the biblical account of what's going on in Egypt? I think it fits very well. Because we see that there was a dynasty of kings who were allied to the Israelites. They were the ones who gave Israel their land. They were the ones who were grateful to Joseph and to the Israelites for what they did in helping them essentially gain power. And now the whole thing shifted. We have another pharaoh who's come to power who fought a war in which his father and brother died to expel those people out of Egypt. And so we see a very real, you know, life account of what the Bible's saying that, and there arose a new king over Egypt who knew not Joseph. You know, it's so clear. And so the, if you were a friend of the Hyksos, you are now an enemy number one of Amenhotep I. So he builds a standing army, and I assume that it would be his very, he's the one who's, I think, is talking in uh, Exodus 1. Let's look at Exodus 1 here. So it would be about the time that Joseph dies, we begin in verse 6. And Joseph died, and all his brethren, and all that generation. And the children of Israel were fruitful, and increased abundantly, and multiplied, and waxed exceeding mighty, and land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And that's this guy, this is Amenhotep I. He arose as a new king, who had no reason to be kind to the Israelites, and in fact he distrusted them. Now you could hypothesize a little bit, and I think that it's quite possible that some of the young men of Israel would have, you know, may have taken part in this war, and they probably would have fought on the side of the Hyksos. So, very true that, you know, this guy would see them as someone that, the, that he needs to control. He needs to make sure that they have to have permits if they want a sword, right? They gotta have permits for a spear. Just make sure that they, there is no way that these people could revolt. So he begins to overtax them and afflict them and put a heavy hand on the Israelites. Well, that seems to not really be holding them back. Um, eventually, Amenhotep will pass away. He ruled from 1550 to 1529. It's actually in 1530 
that the capital city of Hyksos will fall, the city of Avaris. That's a kind of important little city because it's very close to what would be the land of Goshen. And it is eventually rebuilt by Ramses the Great and called Ramses. And that's important because when you read in Exodus that you know, the Israelites built the city of Pi, cities of Python and Ramses, well, that would have been you know, right there in that area, but it seems that maybe there was a, a renaming that originally that's the city of Avaris at the time of the Israelites, but then later it becomes known as the city of Ramses. Okay, so Avaris Falls, 1530. The next king over the next pharaoh is Thutmose I. Um, and it's important to understand this. I think this is an interesting quirk of history that we know his daughter's name. Um, her name is Hatshepsut. Now, he did have two daughters. One of them, however, died in infancy. So, his one daughter, Hatshepsut, um, and this is likely the pharaoh who instituted the policy to kill the Hebrew male children. You know, I think there's kind of a, somewhat of a gradual progression of the oppression of the Israelites. You know, there would have been the heavy-handed oppression, and then there's, but they're still multiplying, they're still multiplying. He thinks they're still getting out of hand. So the next pharaoh introduces this policy of killing the Hebrew children. And that would have been Thutmose I and his one daughter, Hatshepsut. Now, when uh, Thutmose I passes away, he uh, does not have a clear heir to the throne, so to speak. He has one son by a, kind of a concubine, if you would, that uh, his name is Thutmose II. And so, without him having a essentially a clear-cut, legitimate claim to the throne as the son of Pharaoh's first wife, um, there's an arranged marriage that he, is, he and Hatshepsut, his half-sister, are forced to marry each other to legitimize Thutmose's the second claim to the throne. That's a little weird in our book, but that was pretty common in Egypt. Okay, um, So Hatshepsut, who was the daughter of Thutmose I at the time that Moses was born in 1526, and she's, she would have essentially been a, a young teen, like 13, 14, maybe even 12, when Moses was born. And, you know, this is what we know from history. And, you know, again, we're hypothesizing, but, boy, it sure does fit that that would have been the very young lady who found Moses in the river and took him out. So we have, we have a name to put with that story in the Bible, the name of Hatshepsut. Now Thutmose II, he was a somewhat sickly fellow. He uh, dies fairly young, and he, leaves, he had a similar problem because Hatshepsut, his wife, uh, did not have any children, or no male son. She appears to have had one daughter. Um, so he dies of somewhat of an illegitimate heir in Thutmose III. But Thutmose III, the only son of Thutmose II, is only about two years old when Thutmose II dies. And so his wife, Hatshepsut, takes it upon herself to become the ruler of Egypt. So she would become the second female pharaoh in Egyptian history. And if we read over in Hebrews, this kind of 
really opens up, I think, the questions you might have had of how an Egyptian pharaoh could adopt a Hebrew infant and have the power where nobody's going to say anything to her as she raises this son as her own. And that's the simple thing is that she actually became pharaoh herself. And if she's the pharaoh, no one can tell her what she's going to do with this adopted child. She's got all the power of Egypt at her disposal. So we read in Hebrews 11, 23 to 29. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So we see that Moses was very much raised in the household of the pharaohs and had opportunity to stay there and could have maybe been the, the uh, heir of the throne himself. But we know that that didn't happen. And in essentially 40 years before the Exodus, so 1486, Moses leaves Egypt. Now there's an interesting thing. This is something we can think about a little bit. There was a, a man named Senesmut, who was the chief architect and high steward to Hatshepsut. And he has a, a, t a tomb that was built for him. It's a real, you know, for, for not being a pharaoh, it's, it's a rather elaborate complex. Um, but he was not buried in it. He disappears from history in Egypt at the same time, essentially the same year, that from a biblical chronology we would consider Moses to have left. What you make of that is kind of up to, up to you, but it, it's pretty interesting. Um, a couple theories exist. One, that, that Senesmut was in fact Moses. Um, another theory would be that Senesmut was the Egyptian who Moses killed. But we know that, you know, like I say, there was a, a tomb uh, built for him it described, you know, his deeds and every, all the things that he had built as an architect. Um, a very uh, advanced uh, star chart on the ceiling of that place. And, but he disappears and is not buried in, in that tomb. So, somewhat interesting. So, <laughs> that young Hatshepsut dies unexpectedly um, of probably cancer. Then that, that young two-year-old boy who was the son of Thutmose II comes to power. He's Thutmose III. And Hatshepsut may have made a miscalculation in what she did with him. She really did want to maintain power. And so she had shuffled him off to be with the military. He was kind of raised by generals. And he became very well-liked, a real hero in the Egyptian army. And so he comes to power and he is just... Rah, he's ready to go out there and, and conquer. Um, he's the guy who famously said, no king of Egypt except he also be the king of Euphrates. No, that, actually that was King Henry VIII and different. But. <laughs> but he pushes the Egyptian empire all the way up into Canaan. Um, 
and really, really grows that. He goes on 17 pretty famous different military campaigns. Um, and, you know, so we're getting close to the timeline. He rules from 1484, 1452. We're getting close to the Exodus. Um, so he dies about 1452. And, you know, we would expect from the biblical account to see a pharaoh pass away shortly before the Exodus. Because as we read in Exodus 2, 23 to 25... And it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage. And they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God, hearing their groaning, and God remembering his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and God looked upon the children of Israel and had respect unto them. So I think they were right at the point there at the death of Thutmose III. So he is succeeded by his second-born son, a man named Amenhotep II. We don't I think that his first son died in some sort of an accident. Um, so we're going to consider that Amenhotep II is the pharaoh of the Exodus. Now, he, he's very much the, an arrogant prince that comes to power. He, um, there's a picture, you know, an engraved image of him on a wall, and he's riding in a chariot, and he's shooting a bow, and there's this target over there, and there's like five arrows that are just dead center in there, you know, he's shooting from the chariot, just, just a real warlike, you know, I can do anything I set my mind to. Um, just, just the guy that you would fit perfect into the story of the Exodus, right? Now, compared to his father, he only has two military campaigns that are both very early in his career. Hmm, I wonder what happened to his army. Um, so, and it's important, you know, that he is a second-born son of Thutmose III because there's the plague, the tenth plague that kills all the firstborn sons in Egypt. But the Pharaoh didn't die himself, right? At that. Well, possibly because he was the secondborn son himself. Now he is succeeded by his secondborn son, and a guy named Thutmose IV, and that's witness to, there's an account by Thutmose IV, uh, in the thing called the dream steel, steely, which he explains that, you know, the Sphinx talked to him, and if he did such and such deed that he would be given the throne over his brother. Um, no accounts given on what happened to his brother, but uh, I think we could piece that together from the Exodus account, that his brother was killed the night of the Passover. So about the time that Thutmose third passes away, Amenhotep becomes... Pharaoh, God visits Moses at the burning bush. We, he comes to Egypt. You know, the, the plagues, if you kind of look through the chronology that would have happened there, that actually probably took a year to 18 months, a little bit of time. And then 1446, we have the exodus out of Egypt and the covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. So... <clears throat> You know, then we could come forward 40 years would approximately be the uh, fall of Jericho. Um, and so I hope that, you know, you understand now that, you know, the, the Exodus is a very real account in history, like I said. That, you know, the whole situation, it, it really makes sense when you overlay the biblical history and the world history at that time. Um, I want to give 
credence to some of the, the sources that I had for this material. There's a, a YouTube channel, a guy, a real Christian historian by the name of Bruce Gore. And a lot of what I've, I've presented here is from him. If you have a chance to look at his channel on YouTube, I really, really recommend it. He's a, you know, a Presbyterian minister. Right now he's got a series he's going through called uh, Presbyterians and the American Revolution. Pretty interesting stuff. And then I want to explain, too, that the, the, the timeline that I've used for the 18th dynasty is a little different from what, you know, if you just got on Wikipedia, you would see. Um, using a timeline put forth by a guy named Douglas Petrovic, um, and it's kind of based, there's an a important document called the Ebrus Papyra, and it dates an astronomical event that happened as being near the beginning of Amenhotep the first reign. And that really is what anchors the whole view of Egyptology and when the 18th dynasty happened. Um, and he has an alternate theory that that, should, that that event would have happened or would have been recognized from when it was seen in Memphis, which is the ancient capital of Egypt, and not in Thebes, where the 18th dynasty began to reign. I just want to put that out there because, like I say, if you look at Wikipedia, you're going to see about a 25-year difference in the chronology that I've presented and what you'll find there. So he gave some really good arguments for why that would be, and simply this, his you know, timeline fit very well with the Exodus, so I've kind of gone with that. Um, let's have a little bit of a Bible lesson, I guess. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 14. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they turn and encamp before Pihahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, over against Baal-Zephin, before it shall ye encamp by the sea. So, you know, the Israelites are running away from Pharaoh, and they're trying to get across the the top of the Sinai Peninsula, and God says, turn back and go, go down and encamp against the Red Sea. And this seems like a horrible idea, if you think about it, because they're, they're just about to get across the top of the, into the Sinai Peninsula. He's like, go, go down there and camp with your back against the Red Sea. So Moses leads them down there, and uh, sure enough, Pharaoh follows them. You know, it's kind of a you can picture kind of a ravine they've gone through that leads them up and puts their back against the Red Sea. And, uh, you know, the Israelites, they, they say to Moses, they give this super sarcastic comment. It says, uh, are there no graves in Egypt that you brought us here to die? <laughs> now, what's, what's Egypt famous for? Graves, all the monuments of of the dead, right? There's no graves in Egypt that brought us here to die? And what does Moses say to them? He says, stand back and see the salvation of our God, right? And so, as we look through this story, I hope that it's been made very real to you that the God that we serve is the omnipotent orchestrator of human events. As empires rise, as rulers rise and fall that subject Israel to hardships, that bring judgment, all of that is in God's control. We need to simply have faith that the Lord will provide for his people. Let us stand back and see the salvation of our God as he opens the gates 
and seaways before us to allow us to go free and to bring judgment upon the wicked. Amen. Amen.